You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. The stuff going on here, and thank you, Elvin, for sharing that today. Actually, we're going to get that under control, right? Actually, that fit in perfectly, of course, with what we're going to be talking about here this morning. Maybe that mic's still on? Okay. Sound guys will take care of it. I don't worry about them back there. Good morning and welcome to all of you. Um, for those of you that don't know, we have people here from all over this, uh, this uh, country of ours. I hesitate to characterize it. And we got people here. I'm going to get them out of the way first. New York. Yeah. And we've got people here from uh, Kentucky, or at least a person. Are you still in Kentucky, Tom? All right, still in Kentucky. We have people from Indiana, and we have people from Illinois, and we have people from Arizona. Did I miss anybody? People from Montana. Okay, uh, we're, we're all here. And uh, just welcome and glad to have you here. Please turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Does anyone here ever use Google Maps? To plan your trip, Google Maps, a few, okay. You, you've learned how, yeah. Wouldn't it be great if you could get directions to heaven on Google Maps? They'd be pretty simple directions. Turn right, go straight. Okay, those are the directions to heaven, right? Yeah. yeah. And what would you find once you got there? I will preface this by saying it's a joke. That's all it is. It's only a joke. Please no, it's a joke, okay? One night a man died and went to heaven, as is commonly portrayed. He met Peter at the pearly gates, and Peter escorted him in. As they walked down a long hall, there were clocks everywhere, but they all went at different speeds. The man asked Peter for an explanation. Peter said that each person on earth had a clock, and that each time they lied, the clock ticked to talk. Presently, they passed a clock that wasn't moving. The man asked whose it was. Oh, that's Billy Graham's, Peter replied. They passed many other clocks along the hall, but one person's they never saw. So the man asked Peter, well, where's Hillary Clinton's clock? <laughs> Peter said, oh, we keep it on the ceiling in the office. On the ceiling, the man asked, yes, we're using it for a fan. Uh-huh. Those are only jokes. Only, only jokes. No, no, no. In the church age in which we live, in the church age, the real directions to heaven involve believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And the second part about what you will find once you get to heaven is what we are going to talk about this week and next week. What heaven will be like has been the subject of conjecture for thousands of years. And not just conjecture, there's a lot told in the, in the scriptures, but people have gone beyond that. In his book called Heaven, Author Randy Alcorn says this. How many of you read Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven? Did you like it? Mm, yeah, yeah, I did too. He says this. Heaven is both a country and a city. A country is typically a large territory of various geographies with citizens of diverse cultures and vocations, sometimes even languages, under one government that provides a common identity. A city is a place of many residences in near proximity. A city's inhabitants are subject to the common government. Cities usually have varied and bustling activity, community events, education, arts, and visitors. 
Heaven is and will be a place of great beauty, both natural created beauty and architecture, including streets of gold and buildings of pearls and emeralds and precious stones. Heaven will have the advantages we associate with earthly cities without the disadvantages like crime, pollution, and corruption. In heaven, we will rest from our labors on earth. Heaven's labor will be refreshing, productive, and unthwarted without futility and frustration. Perhaps it will be like the work Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, before sin brought the curse on the ground with its thorns. Our work will be more purposeful in light of Christ's redemptive work and the glory it will have brought. We will also eat and drink and celebrate at the table with Christ and the redeemed saints from earth, communicating and fellowshipping and storytelling and rejoicing with them. Communication, dialogue, corporate worship, and other relationship-building interactions all take place in heaven. Saints and angels and God himself will interact together, building and deepening their relationships. Now, I know that's a long quote, but if you have not read Randy Alcorn's book, I really encourage you to do so. Not because I necessarily agree with everything he has to say about heaven, but because it presents heaven in a way that is unlike how many seem to picture the eternal state of those who are saved. Rather than an eternal sameness leading to boredom, existence in heaven will be perfectly fulfilling and satisfying in ways we cannot experience in this world because of the presence of sin and the influence of evil. What we find in Revelation chapter 21 is not so much a description of what life in heaven will be like, there's some of that, but not so much that, as it is a description of why life in heaven will be different than the life we experience now. Last week in Revelation 20, we got a pretty clear picture of what eternity will be like for those who are not saved. This week and next week, we're going to look at what eternity will be like for those who receive salvation. And that's the title of today's message, Eternity for the Saved, Part 1. Let's read Revelation 21, start with verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. And there will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts, from the spring of water of life, without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, and unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, in what is a shockingly brief statement, 
for a universe-altering event, John simply says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. Now we might wonder. We might wonder at what the transition between the two states look like, but John doesn't say. Last week we mentioned 2 Peter 3.10, where it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. And that seems to set the stage for the coming of the new heaven and the new earth. But rather than focusing on that transition, John moves immediately to the appearing of the holy city that he calls New Jerusalem, which he compares to a bride on her wedding day as she is joined to her husband. Now we'll talk more about the city in the next section, but John hears a voice from the throne that announces a fantastic development in the state of relations between men and God. Here's something that hasn't happened in all the history of man except at the very beginning. God himself will dwell with mankind. God's tabernacle, his dwelling place, will now be among men. This is a state that has not been seen since the time of Adam and Eve when God walked in the Garden of Eden with them and had personal fellowship with them. You might remember uh, as we've been studying Exodus in our adult Sunday school class, if you were here for that, or other studies of Exodus that you might have done, when God spoke from Mount Sinai, the people were afraid that he would destroy them. They pleaded for Moses to go speak to God in their place, but don't make us go. Don't make us hear. They were afraid and they wanted to keep their distance from God. Isn't that tragic? They wanted to keep their distance from God. In heaven, we will be able to be in God's very presence without fear of death or destruction or any other consequence. In fact, when we live for eternity in God's presence, every hurtful thing will be eradicated. Here the list includes tears, death, mourning, crying and pain, and it says that these things will never be experienced by God's people who dwell with him in eternity. What's actually being described here? The voice tells John that the first things have passed away. These first things that he says, that he talks about here, those are the only things that you and I have ever known. Our world is filled with tears and death and mourning, and crying, and pain. And you know why. You know why our world is filled with those things. The source of those things is sin. And what John is told about the New Jerusalem, where men dwell directly in God's presence, is that there is no more sin. And that's how come those things will not be present any longer. This is the ultimate fulfillment of the words that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, when he said, Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, I want you to hear that again. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Those words speak of the transformation that occurs in the lives of Christians now here on earth, but they also speak of the eternal state that every Christian longs to see, eternity in the very presence of God. And the one who sits on the throne, it's not absolutely clear because the description could go either way. It's either God the Father or Jesus Christ. 
Back in chapter 20, my opinion is that it was pretty clear that it was Jesus there on the great white throne of judgment. I'm going to go with Jesus here, but if you prefer to see God the Father in the throne here, that's okay with me. I think either way is appropriate. Whichever one it is makes two statements that go together here. First, he says, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, in the College Press NIV commentary and Revelation, uh, Dr. Christopher Davis says this, God does not make all new things, but all things new. The consummation of the kingdom does not mark the end of God's creation, but the transformation of creation so that it conforms to his sovereign will. God created the universe and pronounced it good. That was back in Genesis 1.31. He loves his creation and does not want to destroy it. Instead, he wants to redeem it by removing the so-called cancer of evil and restoring it to health. At the same time, we will be transformed and purified and renewed so that we conform to God's will in every way. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the state of your existence in which you conform to God's will in every way, that power of God will be applied to you when you enter eternity if you are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ before he returns. The second statement that the one on the throne makes, connected with the first, he says, Behold, I make all things new. The second statement he makes is, It is done. Now, this is not the same word that Jesus used on the cross when he said, it is finished, but there is a similar finality to both expressions. On the cross, Jesus testified to completing the work the Father had given him to do on earth, namely, to offer himself as an atoning sacrifice for mankind. In Revelation 21, 6, I think it's Jesus, who says that the work of making all things new is done. As John witnesses this unfold, in front of him in heaven, Jesus makes that pronouncement, I make all things new and it is done. And at that point, at that point, there will not be any further anticipation of future change or any need. Because when all things are made new, they will be made new forever. No additional need of renewal will ever come about. And just as Jesus promised the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well back in John chapter 4, he said here he will provide living water for those who are the new Jerusalem, and it will not cost them anything. Living water and an eternity free from every hurtful thing is given as an inheritance to those who are the sons of God. And so then we have to ask, well, who are the sons of God? Jesus says here that they are the ones who overcome, the ones who are victorious. If you remember, if you were here Way back when we started this series in Revelation, there was a word there for those who overcome. It's the word of, of victory. It's the Greek word that we get uh, the, the, the tennis shoe logo Nike from, the word Nike. It's the Greek word that means victory. That's the word that's used here for the ones who overcome. They're described back in chapter 20, verse 4, as those who had been Beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. Those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. Those who had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. These are the ones who are victorious. These are the ones who overcome. They are the ones who are covered by the blood of Christ. Romans 8, 16 to 17, our call to worship this morning, describe them like this. The Spirit himself 
testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And while that's great, and there's an internal inheritance for those who are the sons of God, we have to recognize that some are excluded. Not all are included in this inheritance. And that's one of those things that we continue to push back against, this teaching of universalism. And universalism is a popular teaching. It says that everyone will eventually be saved. Isn't that great? Isn't that appealing? Wouldn't that be wonderful if it were true? But it's not. That's not the way God's justice works or God's mercy works or God's grace works. That universalism is not true. Because if it were true, it means that no one would spend eternity in hell. And the scriptures couldn't be more clear that universalism is not true. We've seen it before as we've studied Revelation. Chapter 14 explicitly says that those who are aligned with the beast will experience torment which lasts, and I quote, forever and ever. Here in Revelation 21.8, we have another statement concerning those who will not be saved. Those listed here are the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and liars. And those of you that were in adult Sunday school class remember the way that list works. You've got murderers and liars in the same list here. You'll have to work that out based on what we talked about from Exodus 21 this morning. Now, when you read that list here in Revelation, do any objections come to mind? And, and I just kind of alluded to one of them. I mean, do you read the list of those whose part will be in the lake of fire and say, now, wait just a minute. I can think of a couple of object, objections people might have. We might be okay with the unbelieving being on that list. Well, you know, they were never really participants. We can understand that, right? And uh, uh, that word could also mean untrustworthy, but we're not going to go there anyway. Certainly murderers, right? Sorcerers, idolaters belong there, we probably think. We might be a little less comfortable with immoral persons, perhaps wondering what the scope of that phrase is exactly. Where does that line get drawn, right? But what about the part that says all liars? Does everyone who ever told a lie really go to hell? Well, the short answer is no, but we would have to explain that. Lying is a sin. Anyone whose sin has not been forgiven can expect to spend eternity in hell. More than that, as used here, the word liar describes the one who opposes Christ, Christ, who called himself the truth. The liar never acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so in that way, we can say, yeah, liars belong on this list. The other objection that I anticipate some raising here, maybe, concerns the cowardly. Now, certainly, cowardice is not the most desirable of human qualities, but does it really render someone deserving of eternal punishment in hell? The short answer is yes. But again, we need to explain that. This cowardice is the fear stemming from unbelief. Christians who recant their faith rather than suffer persecution could be described as cowardly in this way. It is exactly opposite to the character and nature of those who are truly in Christ. 
It's what keeps people from accepting Christ because they're more afraid of what their friends will think or how it's going to affect them in society or that persecution might come than they are about how their relationship with Christ should be. Paul used the same word in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, when he told Timothy, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, the same Greek word that is translated cowardly here, but of power and love and discipline. The cowardly are those who have not truly received the spirit given by God. Not everyone goes to heaven. The scriptures are clear on this point. John will come back to this at the end of the chapter, but for now, let's take a closer look at the New Jerusalem, starting in verse 9. Long passage to read. Just kind of let yourself go and listen to the description and, and picture this as I read or read along with me. Revelation 21, 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, and its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as, it, as the width. And he measured the city with the rod. Fifteen hundred miles, its length, and width, and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the streets of the city were pure gold, was, excuse me, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Now I know, again, that's a long passage. We'll try and break it down into certain topics here. Like, first of all, what, who, who constitutes the bride. Back in chapter 19, verses 7 through 9, we read, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And that was the first reference we had, and now we have the reference again. It says it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, in chapter 21, the angel describes the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He goes on to describe the New Jerusalem. But who is he really talking about? Who is this? Well, the expression, bride of Christ, is sometimes considered to be synonymous with the church. And I don't have any quarrel with that. I think it describes the church 
uh, absolutely accurately. But Revelation chapter 21 seems to expand on that a little bit. As far as the church age is concerned, I would agree. The church is the bride of Christ, as alluded to in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, you remember where it says that husbands are to love their wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We have that parallel relationship. But in Revelation 21, 14, we see a connection between the New Jerusalem and the church in that the 12 foundation stones of the wall of the city had the names of the 12 apostles written on them. And so we'd say, great, well, then the bride of Christ is the church. But what about in that same wall, the 12 gates, having the names of the 12 tribes written on them that we see here in verse 12? The 12 tribes of Israel, right? Wouldn't that indicate a connection to Israel, the Old Testament? You know, as we saw back in Revelation 7, in that symbolic way, there were 144,000 who had the seal of God on them from the 12 tribes of Israel. I say symbolic. I don't think that's a literal number. I think it represents a large, indeterminate number, all of whom are completely accounted for by God. And then after the 144,000, we also saw a large multitude, too many to be counted. And I think that both of these groups are descriptions of all those who are saved of all time. And that the New Jerusalem and the bride, the wife of the Lamb, are two more descriptions of the same group. These are all those who have ever been saved, either prior to the Abrahamic covenant, under the Abrahamic covenant, under the Mosaic covenant, or under the new covenant that we live under today in the church age. And then what is it with all these twelves? Okay, it's like the power went out, and you're looking at the microwave, and it just says 12, 12, 12, right? Well, what is it with all these 12? We have several references here in this passage to 12 or multiples of 12. Now, that's not so obvious in my Bible. In my Bible, my Bible translated it into English units or, or units we're more commonly you know, familiar with, uh, and I read out of the New American Standard. But in many other translations, if you have the English Standard Version, the New International Version, King James New King James, or the Holman Christian Standard Version, right? Or even the Amplified Bible, and that's just names a few. Then it's very clear how many different times numbers relating to 12 are mentioned. In, in those translations, the length, width, and height of the city is said to be 12,000 stadia. We don't, what's a stadia? It's 600 feet, everybody knows that, right? You all knew that, right? And the walls are said to be 144 cubits thick. 144, that's 12 squared. And then there are things that we already mentioned, the 12 foundation stones, the 12 gates. So what is it with all the 12s? Well, I think it's similar to the 144,000 people mentioned back in chapter 7. 12 by itself is the number of all the tribes of Israel or the number of the original 12 apostles. The use of the number 12 seems to mean that this is everyone, that no one that God has saved has been left out. It, it's a number that indicates that God has accounted for every one of them. The thickness of the wall, in, your, in some of your translations, says 144 cubits. And we already said that's 12 times 12. Well, could that be? That the, uh, the apostles, the number of the apostles and the number of the tribes of Israel multiplied together are represented there in the totality of the wall. They're not separate, distinct groups any longer. In the words of Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, 
You can say Gentile if you want. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that includes those who were saved before Jesus Christ died on the cross. The dimensions of the city represent the perfection of God's dwelling place. Now, if you go back to when Solomon built the temple, you can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 6. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. And there you'll find that when Solomon built the temple... When he made the Holy of Holies, he made it 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. Not multiples of 12, but it is a perfect cube. This room was home to the Ark of the Covenant, which was also called the Mercy Seat. It was the place where God himself would appear, according to Leviticus chapter 16. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, and then only once a year to sprinkle the blood of the atoning sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant. And that Holy of Holies was separated from the rest of the interior of the temple, what was called the Holy Place, by a thick veil. And I imagine most of you remember what happened the day Jesus was crucified. As he was crucified, as he died, that veil was torn in two. That veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the place where the priests could all come to the place where God himself would dwell, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom, removing the barrier. Hebrews tells us that by the death of Jesus, a way was made for all to come into the very presence of God. And so that the city is a cube, is a parallel to the Holy of Holies there in the tabernacle and then in the temple. Now, if we were to take the dimensions literally, I like to do this sometimes, look at the numbers and, and run the numbers. If we were to take the dimensions literally, the New Jerusalem, the city as described here, is more than 373 quintillion cubic feet in volume, right? Okay, it's just an unimaginably large number. That's over 2.5 billion cubic miles, now, they're interesting numbers, but I don't take them literally. I think the enormity of it all is supposed to overwhelm us. This is the dwelling place of God, who himself is infinite. The important part is that the city represents all who belong to God and the fact that they all get to be there with him. And that could mean you, and it does mean you if you're in Christ. And then we have the precious stones and the pearly gates, and, and these things, the precious stones that make up the walls of the city, the pearls of the gates, I think almost certainly represent the value and beauty of the people of the city to God. How does God view you? What value does God place on you? How much are you worth to God, right? I mean, the wealth of the, a literal wall of those dimensions made out of those materials would be incalculable. Not to mention uh, the value of the pearls, pearls tall enough to serve as gates, right? 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us how much we are worth to God. Verses 18 and 19 say, Know this, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb un unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You want to know how much you are worth to God? Read those two verses again and tell me how much you are worth to God. You are worth the shed blood of his son Jesus as he died on the cross. That's what God paid for you to be redeemed to him. 
And of course, there's streets of gold or a street of gold or however it is said here. And as evidenced by the gifts that the Magi brought to Jesus after his birth, gold represents the wealth of kings. And you all know, now see, I used to have a gold ring, a gold uh, wedding ring, and it was a narrow band because we got married when we were young and poor. It was a narrow band, and it was made out of 10 karat gold. Ooh, you know, 10 karat. 10 karat isn't even half, right? Pure gold is how many? How many carats is pure gold? 24, right? 10 karat, you're less than half. But it would wear out. Uh, it got really thin down here, so Audrey and I went and got these carbide things that really hold up well, and I think they look okay, but they're not as valuable as gold, right? The purer gold is, the more valuable it is. Here, both the city and the street of the city are described as being made of pure gold, like transparent glass. And I think the key word here is pure. I think that indicates the character of all those who make up the new Jerusalem. Think about yourself, even if you're in Christ, even. Think about yourself and think about describing yourself as pure. And if you're like me, you're going to say, except for. There are going to be exceptions to that characterization of yourself as pure. Well, I think that part of our transformation, I know that part of our transformation will include a complete cleansing from all corruption, from all perversion, from all error, and from all sin. And if you are in Christ, you will obtain a purity without any exception, a purity such as you have never known in this life. When we come to the last section here, verses 22 through 27, we find out there's some things missing in this new Jerusalem. Verse 22 says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime, excuse me, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Some things missing in heaven. There's no temple you know, we've looked at many of the things that will be in heaven. It's called the New Jerusalem. But there are some things that won't be. And, and the first one that mentioned here is that there, there won't be a temple. Under the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament and stretching into the New Testament, the tabernacle and then later the temple in Jerusalem represented the worship of God by his people. Now that temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Not one stone left upon another, just like Jesus said. You can go there now. You can find these huge I mean, massive stones weighing many, many, many tons knocked off of the plateau on which the temple was built. And they were just pushed over the side and, and heaped up there because the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Some seek to rebuild it today, but here's the thing we know. There won't be a temple in heaven because God is right there. Because Jesus is right there. And there will not be a need for a building to serve as an interface for worshiping them. Not going to be any sun or moon either. Genesis chapter 1, on day 4 of creation, God created the sun and the moon. And the express purpose of these objects was to provide light by day and night for the earth. But no such objects will be required in heaven. God's glory 
illuminates heaven. And Jesus is portrayed here as the lamp. Now, you don't have to make all the comparison, but if you're interested and want to pursue this further on your own, I encourage you to go home and reread Revelation 21, and then go back to Isaiah and read chapters 60 and 65, and look for all the parallels that exist between those chapters. Uh, take a look also at John chapter 1 and look at the references there to Jesus as the light of the world. Not going to be any darkness in heaven. What does darkness always, almost always represent in the scriptures? Darkness almost always represents sin or evil, right? Not going to be any darkness in heaven. And it's because of God's presence and Jesus right there. Third thing that's not going to be there is anything unclean. In Revelation 27, John reiterates that heaven... The New Jerusalem will not contain anything or anyone that is unclean. Here he specifically mentions those, again, who practice abomination and lying. The new heaven and the new earth will never be corrupted like God's original creation was corrupted by sin. And we're going to build on that a little bit next week. But right now, rather than viewing this statement as a further indictment against those who practice sin, I think we should view it as a statement concerning the incorruptible nature of heaven and all who dwell there. Now, some of you may have been Christians for a very short time. Some of you may have been Christians for years and years and years. Every one of us still struggles with sin. Okay? Every one of us struggles with sin. Every one of us here has lost that battle more than once. Don't you look forward to an eternity where you won't have that struggle ever again? Never, ever have to struggle with sin again. It'll be incorruptible. Paul wrote about that in 1 Corinthians 15, another good passage for you to go to and find the parallels. So which part of heaven, which part of heaven do you look forward to the most? You know, we're going to look at some other aspects of it next week. But even in just what we've studied so far, or, or in just what we've studied here today, there's many things that I think all of us should want. And I'll just tell you, as for me, I'm really looking forward. Oh, I could name several things, but this one stands out to me right now. I am really looking forward to that time when I will never again experience tears or death or mourning or crying or pain. I long for an eternity in which I will never again have to struggle with things like anger or jealousy or selfishness or any other sin or even the temptation to sin. I am so ready for the day when my transformation will be complete and I will be perfectly conformed to the image of Christ, having personal fellowship with him and with God, fulfilling his every desire for me perfectly. And I look at my life today and I see how far I am from that goal. I can get discouraged. Praise God for his perfect faithfulness in bringing me and all who are faithful followers of Jesus Christ to the city of New Jerusalem, heaven, like we've always wanted and like we've always needed. In the last section of Revelation 21, we looked at a few things that will be missing in heaven. We saw there won't be a temple because God and Jesus are right there. There won't be a sun or moon, because God and Jesus provide all the light necessary. There won't be anything or anyone that is corrupt or unclean in heaven. But what about what it said that's not 
missing in heaven. Verse 27 concludes by saying that only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will be present in heaven with God and Jesus forever and ever. And so the question each of us must ask ourselves today is the same question that we asked ourselves last week. Is my name written in the Lamb's book of life? That's not academic. That's not just, you know, rhetorical. I'm not just throwing that out there because it gives me something to say. I want you to consider that question for you. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? If it isn't, don't you want it to be? If your name isn't there, then everything we've read today about the new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem has nothing to do with you. If your name isn't in the Lamb's book of life, then your eternal destination is the lake of fire. And like we say about a lot of things, don't go there. Jesus died on the cross so you wouldn't have to go there. He rose from the dead so you could have eternal life instead of eternal torment. And he's coming back to take all those who belong to him home to be with him forever. And so if you're not yet a Christian, but you would like to be one of those that, that Jesus takes to be with him when he returns, then know this, if you will repent of your sin, if you will confess your faith in Jesus as Savior, be immersed into him for the forgiveness of your sin and follow him faithfully, then you will be a resident of the new Jerusalem and Jesus will come back for you. If you would like to make that decision today, please come forward.